This morning, we are continuing a series that we started uh, about three weeks ago or so on uh, worship, the worship of God, um, distinctly Reformed worship. And um, I'd like you to turn this morning to Leviticus chapter 10. We're just going to look at a few verses there this morning. As you turn there in your Bibles, just want to briefly remind you what we, uh, we learned in that first sermon. And we looked at Hebrews chapter 12, specifically at the question, what happens in worship? Uh, what happens on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening when we come together uh, as God's people in a, a corporate worship service gathering? What actually is taking place? And we learned the wonderful reality is that when we come to corporate worship, we get to go to heaven. We get to go to heaven. Hebrews 12 tells us that, that faith and, and Scripture convinces us that when we come to worship, what really is happening is that we are entering the heavenly courts of the Lord where the saints and the angels are exalting Christ, and we get to partake in that. Our worship here below on earth and the worship of heaven is, is linked together. It's of the same kind. And we talked about the fact that that marvelous reality, that mysterious truth has some profound implications for our worship. One, we should prioritize worship more for ourselves, for our families. Uh, we shouldn't let flimsy excuses or lesser things get in the way of us being here, gathering with the saints above and below in worship whenever the elders call us to worship. We also saw that our worship should be in reverence and in awe because of the God that we are worshiping. We also talked about the fact that right now, through worship, we are embracing our eternal Sabbath rest. And so there's so many practical implications to the fact that we get to go to heaven when we worship the Lord. But once we've come to understand the wonder and the, the privilege of new covenant worship, there's a natural question that follows. And the question is, how should God be worshiped? How should God be worshipped? What kind of worship pleases God? And unfortunately, much of the modern church is simply not concerned with that question. Much of the modern church could care less what kind of worship actually pleases God. For many people in the church today, their first question, their first concern is not what kind of worship pleases God, what kind of worship is acceptable to Him. Their first question is rather, what kind of worship is most pleasing to me? What kind of worship fits my needs and my desires and my preferences? What kind of worship will attract the unbeliever? That's what the modern church is asking. And God's desires for worship so frequently take a back seat to the desires of the worshiper or even the desires of the unbeliever in so many churches today. Unfortunately, even churches that belong to our so-called reformed orbit. I like to look through our church archives once in a while, and in doing so, one day I came across an old article from 1990. And it's in a denominational magazine. It's about a local church. And this is how this church's worship was described. 
Worship at this church adapts itself, adjusts itself to newcomers. According to the minister, messages which are kept fairly simple and and positive, upbeat, are frequently followed by invitations to come forward and to dedicate or rededicate one's life to Christ. Liturgies, that is the order of worship, varies from week to week depending on who's in the audience. That raises a pretty important question. Should our worship, should God's worship be adapted to newcomers or unbelievers? Should our worship be be shaped after cultural trends? Should it be made to fit our personal preferences for what we would like to do in worship? Are good intentions enough to render our worship acceptable to God, or does God's work speak clearly? Does the Scriptures give us guiding principles for how to worship according to the will and the pleasure of God? To put it another way, is God serious? Is God serious about how we worship Him? With that question in mind, look with me at Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Now, in Hebrew, Nadav and Avihu, I'm going to say Nadab and Abihu because I know that's more familiar. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. We're going to end right there in the reading of God's Word. I want to notice one thing first with you this morning, and that is that true worship is God-centered. Deadly worship is man-centered. True worship is God-centered. Deadly worship is man-centered. The account that's before us this morning, the account that I just read, this tragic event here recorded in Leviticus 10, involved Aaron's two oldest sons, Nadab and Abihu, who along with their father were priests in the, in the tabernacle of the Lord. And one of the details that makes this passage show, so shocking to us is the fact that these two men had just begun their priestly service for the Most High God. If we were to go back just a few chapters to chapter 8 in Leviticus, It's recorded there that that Nadab and Abihu had just been ordained as priests of the Lord. They were fresh out of seminary. They knew their stuff. They knew what the Lord's expectations were of them as priests. Earlier on in Exodus 24, we find another record of Nadab and Abihu. They, along with Moses and Aaron, their father, were called by God along with 70 elders of Israel, and they were called to go up Mount Sinai, and there we read something remarkable. There they saw, they saw the God of Israel. We don't 
read that very often in the Old Testament, that God invites human beings up to visit with Him and see Him. That same text, Exodus 24, tells us that to the Israelites who were gathered below on Mount Sinai, that the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire. And yet Nadab and Abihu saw God. In fact, the text says that they ate and they drank there on the mountain in the presence of utter holiness, and they were not consumed. And there at the mountain, God renewed His covenant with His people Israel, and all of them, Nadab and Abihu among them, promised that they would obey the commandments of the Lord. And yet, and yet, having just trembled at the majesty and the glory of the God who is holy, 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 just a few chapters later, they are consumed by God's holy judgment because they have carelessly offered impure worship. What had they done? Well, the text definitely leaves us with some questions. We're simply told that they offered unauthorized, or some translations say, strange fire to the Lord. And we'll look at what that might mean momentarily. But the first thing we need to notice is this, that in some way their focus or their zeal in worship had shifted from God to themselves. In some way, Nadab and Abihu had become too focused on their zeal or their good intentions or their eagerness in worship to offer pure and obedient worship that God would accept. Their focus had shifted from God's will for His worship to their own desires for worship. But Scripture is very clear. True, genuine worship is God-centered, not man-centered. Christian worship is, is the delightful adoration of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by His covenant people. And Scripture is filled with instructions about the God-centered character of worship. In James chapter 4 and Hebrews chapter 4, we are, we are told that we draw near to God in worship. In Psalm 29 and 96, we ascribe glory to His name. We bow down and kneel before God, Psalm 96, 95. Psalm 100, we come before Him with joyful songs. What did Jesus command in Matthew 4, verse 10? You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. What is the scriptural command? Everything in our worship ought to be God-centered. It ought to be God-focused. Now, to many of us who have grown up in a Reformed church, that might seem obvious, hardly worthy of mention. But brothers and sisters, we need to recognize that that is hardly the norm in American Protestant worship. That's hardly the norm in American Protestant worship. The fact of the matter is that much worship today is focused on other things than God. There's a contemporary shift from, from focus on God in worship to focus on the human person the human experience in worship. 
One of our reliable commentators, R. Kent Hughes, points out the fact that congregational worship has taken the form of something done for an audience as opposed to something done by a congregation for God. And how do we know that that's the case? Because this is what we see in the modern church. We see stages and theater seating, programs instead of preaching. We see the latest in audiovisual media, smoke and light shows, dramatic performances and liturgical dance, worship leaders adopting the posture and gesture of professional performers on stage. All of that suggests that the priority of the modern church is entertaining you, not worshiping God. Worship has become all about spiritual entertainment. The congregation is no longer the people of God gathered in worship for covenant renewal and the receiving of the preached word. No, the congregation is just the studio audience providing the backdrop against which the unsaved get evangelized. And the man-centered character of modern worship is also reflected in its singing. If people in the church even sing at all, or rather simply watch those singing on stage. Megachurch pastor Rick Warren is quoted as saying this, I believe that one of the major church issues of the future will be how we're going to reach the next generation with our music. That's the purpose of congregational singing? To reach out and pull people into the church? Or is God the sole object of our praise. Contemporary Christian worship songs are so frequently occupied with human thoughts and human feelings, little focus is given to glorifying God for His character, for His mighty works as they are described in Scripture. Modern worship lyrics spend an inappropriate amount of words expressing the value of my worship, how grateful I am for God's grace, rather than singing the words of Scripture to exalt the character of God. You see, so much of modern worship is focused, is centered upon man above all, and of course that means that it really isn't worship at all. It's not worship. It may be a religious gathering. It may be fun. It may be exciting. It may be informative. It may be entertaining, but it's certainly not worship. The sad reality is that many, too many Christians today are trying to discover the delight of worship by worshiping worship. Worshiping the experience rather than worshiping God Himself. The fact, brothers and sisters, is that we need to lose ourselves. We need to lose sight of ourselves. We need to pursue God if our worship is to be pleasing to Him. And that's one of the great virtues of biblical reformed worship. It's God-centeredness. 
The order, the structure of Reformed worship, the ingredients, what we do in our worship service, leave us with no question about what we as God's people have come here to do, and that is to offer publicly to God our sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips from those that acknowledge His name. We gather to meet, we gather to know, we gather to glorify the triune God as the sole object of our worship and none else. Genuine worship is God-centered. Deadly worship is man-centered. But secondly, we notice that true worship is according to God's will. Deadly worship is according to man's will. Godly worship is according to God's Word, His commandments, not man's will. Returning to our text, we notice that the primary reason that Nadab and Abihu were consumed by God's judgment was because they offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord. And again, we would love to know what was so strange about the fire that they offered to God, the text really doesn't give us that detail, doesn't tell us. We know some things about what they as priests would have been required to do. We know, for example, that uh, the incense that they offered was produced by, by mixing aromatic spices together, and those spices were then vaporized by placing them in a censer which had at its base coals, hot coals. That was the fire that they were to offer to God. Leviticus 16 tells us that the coals in the censer were supposed to be taken from the altar where sacrifices were made. Perhaps Aaron's sons had taken the coals from another place. We don't know. We also know that God required incense offerings to be made on a daily basis, perhaps at a certain time of day, had Nadab and Abihu offered it at the wrong time of the day. We don't know. We simply are not told. But hear this, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that this text doesn't give us the reason why their fire was regarded as strange. What really matters is what the text says next, that they offered fire which God had not commanded them. That's the key. They worshiped God. They made an offering to God in some way that He had not commanded them. And we would expect them to know better. As I said before, they had just been ordained to their position. They knew what the Lord's requirements were. They had just been on Mount Sinai. They had seen God in all of His holiness. We would expect that God's ministers would obey the law of God promptly and sincerely and specifically as God had commanded. And yet remarkably, suddenly, here we find Aaron's sons doing something in worship that God had not commanded them to do. And that's why the fire of the Lord rained down, not to consume, not to accept the sacrifice, but to consume the worshiper. Death by worship. And the account of what happens next is painfully brief. Moses has but one thing to say to his brother. This is what the Lord has said. 
Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be regarded as holy. And before the, all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron can only be silent. He can only cover his mouth before the Lord, before the holiness of God. We might think here that God's actions are far too severe. John Calvin reminds us, if we reflect how holy, holy a thing God's worship is, then the enormity of this punishment will by no means offend us. This raises a very important question for our own worship. How do we know? How do we know that we have worshipped God well? How do we know that we have worshipped in a way that is pleasing to Him, that is acceptable to Him, a way that He will bless? How do we know? And the simple and straightforward test for genuine worship is simply this. Does it conform to God's Word? Does it conform to God's Word? Our Lord Jesus, when He was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, said this, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Notice Jesus' point. God is spirit. He's not made up of material matter. He does not have a physical body. And that's why Israel was commanded in the second commandment, don't make any idols in the form of anything by which to worship God. They should worship Him according to His nature and according to His commandments, according to the truth set forth and given to us in His Word, spirit and truth. And the Bible is filled with examples of those who did not consult God's Word before they set out to worship Him, and the, the results are disastrous. We have here an Adab and Abihu, but there's also the case of Uzzah and the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 9. You remember that account. I've preached on it before. David and uh, those of his company were, were zealous for the Lord. They were excited about bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. It had been with the enemy, the Philistines, and they were eager to bring it back to its rightful place. But you remember that zeal, zeal for God's Ark got the better of David and the Ark movers, and they failed to consult God's Word for how He wanted that Ark to be moved and transported. They should have remembered what God had said in Numbers 4 when God gave instructions. The instructions were simple and straightforward, basically three things. Don't touch the Ark. Don't look at the Ark. And when you transport it, don't use a cart. It should be carried on poles on shoulders. And yet David and the others failed to account for God's wishes for his worship on every score. And when the oxen stumbled and the cart tipped and Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark, no doubt with pure intentions, out of zeal and love for the Lord, God struck him dead. God struck him dead. 
because they had not consulted God's will for how He desired to be worshipped and treated. And no doubt David and the others probably cried out, but God, it was a new cart. We didn't just put the ark in some old stinky cart. It was new. Our intentions were good. Our worship was wholehearted. We were having a grand old time. But God says, you did not consult my word about how I desire to be worshipped. And the result? Death by worship. Lest we think this is an Old Testament phenomenon only, what did Paul say to the Corinthians? In 1 Corinthians 11, they had used the Lord's Supper in a way that dishonored the name of Christ. And some of them were coming under the judgment of God. They were facing the consequences of their impure worship in real life. Some of them were becoming sick. Some of them were even dying because they failed to offer worship to God according to His wishes, according to His will, according to His commands. What do we take from this? God is serious about His worship. God is serious about His worship, and that was something that the Protestant reformers understood. That's something that they wanted to recover. They wanted to recover the proper worship of God. The church of their day, the Roman Catholic Church, had become utterly corrupt by superstition, showy decorations, and pomp and circumstance, man-made traditions that didn't edify but rather burdened the consciences of the faithful. The Word of God wasn't being preached at all. And the goal of, of reformers like Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and Martin Bootser, John Calvin, Guillaume Forel, and all the others was very simple. We must be reformed according to the Word of God. Their goal was simple, to simply let the Scriptures guide and direct everything that the church believes and does, including its worship. And so the Reformers, in keeping with the second commandment, said that our worship should be regulated by the Word of God. We've come to call that the regulative principle of worship. And the principle is very simple. It's very easy to understand. It's straightforward. The principle is this. We should do in worship only what God expressly commands in the Bible. And the flip side of that is this. Whatever God does not command explicitly or by good and necessary inference, He forbids. What this means simply is this that we must not introduce things into the worship of God that He has not commanded. That was the main error of Nadab and Abihu. They had offered fire that God had not commanded. Our confession speaks very plainly about this. Question and answer 96 of the Heidelberg asks, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? The very practical answer that we in no way make an image of God or worship Him in any other way than has been commanded in God's Word. And I love question and answer 98. It warns us we should not try to be wiser than God. We should not try to be wiser than God 
Oh, that seems so obvious. We should not think that we know better than God what kind of worship pleases Him. And yet that's exactly what American Protestants are doing today, trying to be wiser than God. Many churches, evangelical and Reformed, have added drama and dance and political rallies and community events and rock concerts to their order of worship. Even though there is no biblical warrant at all for these innovative worship practices. If we are deliberately reformed according to the Word of God, we must realize that such things are nothing but strange fire. God does not command them. He does not desire them. And therefore, they weary Him. And they anger Him. Good intentions simply are not enough. Only God's Word has the power, has the authority to instruct us on what we are to do in worship so that our worship is pleasing, acceptable to our God who is holy, holy, holy. In our first sermon, we talked about the fact that worship is a glorious blessing. It's a marvelous privilege, a marvelous gift. We get to go to heaven and meet with Christ and His saints and the angels when we, when we worship. It's the greatest experience you could ever imagine or experience on earth. Worship is wonderful. It's a great joy. But we still need to follow God's commands for worship. We must not corrupt it by introducing any strange inventions. We need to learn to delight in submitting our wills, submitting our desires for worship to the desire of God for His worship. We mustn't let our passions, we mustn't let our excitement outrun our obedience to God's Word. We need to humble ourselves before His holiness because only when we live, only when we worship after the pattern that He has set in His perfect holy Word, only then is there true joy for us in worship. Only then is there perfect satisfaction for us. Only then is there freedom of conscience, knowing that we have offered to God a pleasing sacrifice of praise. So let's humble ourselves Let's humble our desires to the perfect will of God for His own worship. And then we will experience the joy and the blessing of this glorious feast. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we ask that You would forgive us. That You would forgive us where our excitement and our zeal and our desires for worship outrun our obedience to what you have said that you desire for your worship. Forgive us when we fail to recognize the enormity of what we do here on Sunday morning and Sunday evening. Come into the very presence 
of a holy God who has stated very clearly in His Word what He desires for His worship. Forgive us when we come here apathetic. Forgive us when we find biblical worship to be boring. Forgive us when we are not willing to submit our wills to Your wills for for Your worship. Forgive us when we are looking for what is exciting and entertaining and emotional rather than the means of grace that You have provided and You have said are for our spiritual edification. O Lord, we thank You for the immense privilege that we have to worship You, but may we never introduce anything into Your worship that is man-centered, man-made, or innovative. But help us to rejoice in the marvelous, rich blessings of biblical worship that you have given to us. Help us to be reformed according to the Word of God that we might in our worship and in all of life submit ourselves willingly to you, that you might be glorified through us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn with me in your Psalters to number 164. 164. God Himself is with us. Do you believe that? God Himself is with us. Let us now adore Him and with awe, awe, appear before Him. God is in His temple. All within keep silence prostrate lie with deepest reverence. Him alone, God we own. Him, our God and Savior, praise His name forever. Let's sing those three stanzas as we get to our feet. 164.
As we leave this place, as we look forward to a day of rest and service, resting in the gospel, as we look forward to returning again tonight to worship our great God, receive now the parting blessing of God. The grace of Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.